If you have your Bible there with you this morning, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 23. Today we'll be reading from verse 44 down to verse 49 simply. I'll read it too. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Again, beginning at verse 44. And now it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the whole, all of the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. The whole crowd who had came to gather together to that site, seeing that what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all of his acquaintances... And the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Amen. Here we are at the most important event in human history. An event that is unlike any other that had ever taken place, that will ever take place on earth. Here we have the very Son of God, God Himself being crucified, the Creator being crucified by His creation, being sentenced to death unlawfully. We have an event unlike any other. And it's saying that the Gospels are very light on the details. We must compress them together to get a fuller picture of what was happening there on that hill in Golgotha. Golgotha. We are told here in verse 44 that a darkness settled upon the place. Now, this was not an eclipse. I want to make sure that you understand this. When we talk about darkness... It is the kind of darkness that you experience when you're in the forest in November. It is the kind of darkness that settled upon Egypt during the great plagues of Moses. A darkness so thick you could feel it. So thick you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It is an unnatural darkness. A supernatural darkness. It is the veil of the presence of God. We know it couldn't have been an eclipse because the Passover is always held on a full moon. And everyone knows you can't have an eclipse while there is a full moon. This is not a normal darkness. The Bible tells us that it happened on the sixth hour. The Jewish or the ancient world time calendar thing was divided into 12 we are told that Jesus was put upon the cross at the 6th hour at 9 o'clock in the morning and that this darkness descended at the 6th hour so yep 3rd 9 o'clock in the morning so 12 o'clock midday the darkness descends a supernatural unnatural Darkness descending at the brightest part of the day. Popular modern thinking is that this was the powers of darkness. Satan and all his demons gather together to pour out their hatred upon Jesus. But that's poppycock and nonsense. This is not darkness is our anymore. This is the moment when God arrives at the crucifixion. This is the moment when God Himself appears and pours out 
His very wrath upon Jesus. It is in this instant that Christ becomes the sin-bearing sacrifice. God is at the crucifixion. A darkness so great you couldn't see your hand. And in that darkness a stillness. A quiet, again, finished forests in November, December, when you walk in the darkness and there is silence. There's no wind. There's no noise. There's no chirping of the birds. We understand what a darkness, a deep, silent darkness is. It settles upon the crucifixion and everything stops. Everything stops. Those who were gathered there to mock and to scorn Jesus and had been doing so for three hours previously, they huddle together. They, they, they can't find their way home. They are now prisoners of that darkness. And throughout that time, the only voice that is heard is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told within that darkness, during that time, Jesus cries out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we understand that in that time, God was not there in a comforting presence. God the Father wasn't there to console and to to protect His Son. He was there as the one who was Delivering wrath. Not in an end of days kind of way. But in a way that produces salvation. It's here that our redemption is purchased. In that utter darkness. In that private moment between the Father and the Son. When no human eye was allowed to see what was happening. It's there in that utter blackness that the wrath of God is poured out and Jesus drinks down all of the wrath, all of your sin, past, present and future. All of the sin of God's elect was paid for at that time. We are told that this darkness extended for three hours until three in the afternoon. Times are very important. What happened at three in the afternoon on the Passover? It was the time of the evening sacrifice when the lamb would be struck down. When the the blood would be sprinkled upon the altar. When the carcass would be thrown into the great burner, brazier, and the sin would be dealt with. There is a statement being made here. Behold, here is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. You're told that within that darkness, or indeed just as it ended, there was a mighty earthquake. And the, that er, during, in that earthquake, the, the veil of the temple, now we understand the veil of the temple, it was a kind of curtain, but not like a curtain that we have here, not one of these nice, fancy, expensive curtains. When we talk about a curtain, we're talking about a wall of fabric, perhaps as thick as, your fore, as a man's forearm, and giant... Some estimates 15, 20 meters high. It was a wall of fabric. And it was the symbol of the separation between God and man. It protected the holiest of holies from the eyes of human beings. It was a visible representation of the separation between God and man. The high priest could only go in behind the curtain once every year to offer up sacrifices. And in my imagination, I can imagine the high priest, the very one who had been instrumental in the condemnation of Jesus, in the false trial of Jesus, him 
and all of his hypocrisy and all of his sin and all of his fine religious garb and pomp with his cleanser and his little golden bowl and splashy thing going up thinking that he's going to go behind the the curtain and as he approaches it the earthquake happens and somehow in some way we don't know the scriptures don't tell us the curtain is torn in two it rips from the top to the bottom there is a great and it is in that moment that Israel's place in the plans of God stop in that instance it is there that we see symbolically that which has happened spiritually that the separation between God and man has now ended that God has made a way that Israel no longer is the representation no longer is the body by which people can approach God But God has made a new way through Jesus Christ. And it is now by faith in him and in him alone can a person approach God and receive salvation. The tearing of the temple curtain is a great testimony to the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is a done deal kind of symbol. It is an accepted Payment accepted. Now there is no longer a curtain. There is no longer a need for a mediator between us and God. For we have one who stands before God on our behalf. A great high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible then tells us in verse 46. That when Jesus then cried out in a loud voice. And this in itself is unusual. The word for loud voice means unusually loud voice. Now when a person was crucified, it was a terrible death. It was designed so that your your lungs would be compressed. All the air would be pushed out. Your diaphragm would be pushed against your lungs. And you wouldn't be able to breathe. People died By asphyxiation on the cross. You didn't die because it was painful. You didn't die because blood was running from your hands or your your feet or your ankles. You died because of the pressure, the constriction on your lungs. You couldn't speak above a whisper. And you were always fighting for breath. It was a terrible way to die. You had to push yourself up on your, your broken legs or your kneeled legs in order to get a breath. And then you would, you'd fall back down and all the air would be pushed out and you'd be gasping and gasping and gasping for breath. The sheer fact that the Bible records that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and again, a supernaturally loud voice, unnaturally loud voice. We're not talking that it was just simply like a Kyle loud voice. I supposed to have a loud voice. I don't think it's true but hey we're talking a supernaturally loud voice he shouted in such a way that his voice was heard throughout the entire area there wasn't a person who who didn't hear what he said it was a great and mighty testimony a declaration a cry that shook people to their very innermost beings They felt it as well as heard it. Father, into your hands do I commit my spirit. No longer is he crying out, my God, my God. But now, now there is a comforting, now there is a connection. The relationship is restored. No longer is God the Father pouring out his wrath upon his Son. But now he is there in his comforting form Jesus turns and he gives his spirit we know that he's quoting perhaps is he quoting or is the the writer of the psalm psalm 31 quoting Jesus he quote he's 
quoting Psalm 31 verse 5, which is a really interesting psalm. If you have opportunity and time, read that psalm with the reflection that is the Spirit of Christ speaking in that psalm. It is an insight into what is happening at the cross, what is happening at the crucifixion. The Spirit of Christ crying out with resolve and with this understanding that God will rescue him from the hands of the wicked is a very wonderful insight into the Spirit of Christ, a scene from the Old Testament. The Bible says that having said this, this unusually loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Isn't that a beautiful way of saying it? You know that none of the gospel writers ever say that Jesus died. You'll never find in the, the writings of the gospels, of the evangelicals, that Jesus died. He breathed his last. It's a very unusual way of saying it, even in biblical times. Because they knew that it wasn't the end. In ancient, the ancient mind frame was when you died, you died, and that was the end. There was no going on. You may have passed on to a different realm. But for the gospel writers, they were making the point that this was not the end. So if you're an ancient reader reading this in biblical times and you read that Jesus breathed his last, you thought to yourself, well, that's a strange way of saying it. Why didn't they just say he died? Why didn't they just say that he ended? What's going on here? If you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not correct. It's very poetic, but it's not correct. He died. He died. He is no more. But the writer is writing in such a way that he is setting you up for a hook. It is not the end because though he may have breathed his last on Friday, Sunday is coming. The resurrection is coming. Something is coming. And then he wants to build this spirit of expectation and excitement in you. This spirit of you know something's coming. You, you know there's going to be a twist. Oh, you can feel it in your fingers. You can, you, oh, your ear is itching. Something is about to happen. What's going to happen? Oh, this is exciting. Oh, oh, this is exciting. As when he was writing before about the trial of Jesus. And he wanted to elicit a sense of unrighteous anger in you. You know this, this anger that is because of the unrighteousness. This, this terrible thing that happened to Jesus. He's writing in such a way that he wants to elicit emotion from you. He wants to get you passionate about what happened. This is not right. Someone should do something. Someone should write to somebody. We should start a petition, a Facebook group or something about it. We should do something. He wanted to make that emotion in you, to get you up on your feet, to get you kind of, mm. in the same sense, the writer now, about writing about the death of Jesus, he's writing in such a way as to make you expectant. This is not the end. I don't know what's happening, what's going on. He breathed his last. And then we have the responses of those who were at the crucifixion, those who participated in the crucifixion, their testimonies, their response of what they saw. The first being the centurion, the man responsible for physically putting Jesus on the cross. He was the officer. When, I, we, if, when you were a centurion, you were a very important person. Your word was worth more than anyone else's. You, you were a very, very important person. I can't, I can't express how important that position was. We don't really have it. We don't have a mil- military type um, culture. The army isn't really a big thing here. But if you think of America where the army is everything, um, they worship basically their military, you know. First thing, somebody, you know that somebody's in the army, first thing you say to them is thank you for your service. I think it's really weird. 
So what, I was in Afghanistan or wherever they were, Iraq. You say, well, thank you for your service. What did you do there? Well, I was a clerk in the post office in the army. And you're like, but, so you were in the army, but you were working in an office. But thank you for your service. Because they they so admire and worship their military. It doesn't matter what you were doing. Oh, I was fixing cars in the garage, you know. Thank you for your service. I was working in the kitchen providing food. Thank you for your service. Oh, veteran. And I'm not belittling them. But there was this over-the-top worship of the military. And in the ancient world, it was that on steroids. If you were a Roman citizen and, and you had family in the military, you were someone. And if you had been a, a soldier in the Roman military, you were someone. You were just not a citizen. You were, you were someone. And if you were an officer in the military, you were a someone. People you know, would ask you to represent them. You know, again, very much like the American military today. And so to have this man's testimony, he who had been there from the start to the finish and was responsible for everything that was going on, to have his words It carries great weight. His actual testimony of what he saw and what he experienced. Now his words here in this gospel are that surely this was a righteous man. Some translations translate it innocent. That's not right. He's talking about just Alfred Plummer, the commentary writer. He translated it this way or paraphrased it this way. This was a good man. A son of God. Or the son of God. Meaning that he was not just innocent of the crime that he was supposed to have been crucified for. And what was the crime? Here is the king of the Jews. Remember they wrote that above his head. Not just innocent of the crime, but righteous good at one with God no problems about this man there's something different about this man now remember he's been there he saw the the mocking and the scorn and the hatred poured out upon Jesus by the residents of Jerusalem he's heard the the accusations being thrown at him. He, he's witnessed it with his very eyes. He's the one who received the command from Pilate to take him out and beat him. He's seen how Jesus has borne all of the unrighteousness and all of the hatred that has been spewed out upon him. How Jesus has taken it nobly. The Bible tells us that like a, a lamb before his shearers is silent. Jesus doesn't utter a word. He doesn't complain. Doesn't say, oh, this is unfair. I haven't done nothing wrong. Please have mercy. Nothing. He saw the great acts of mercy as the thief on the cross who had originally mocked and scorned and made fun of Jesus turns in repentance and cries out for help and how Jesus in great mercy promises paradise to that thief and then the darkness appeared indeed one of the expressions that have been written is the sun failed to shine it wasn't that the sun went away it was that it just stopped shining we can't explain it supernatural unnatural it was the veil the presence of God gathered around the cross. He's witnessed all of these things. He's heard the cries of Jesus. He sees this great, sees and hears this great declaration. Think how many men this man must have crucified. The Romans loved to crucify people. You know, you tied your shoes wrong, crucified. Didn't pay your taxes, crucified. Sneezed on someone while I put your hand, crucified. They just, no, there was no mercy with the Romans. You know, they had two punishments, you know. 
death or death. Think how many men this man must have crucified. Men, women, and children. They were not prejudiced at all. And yet here, the crucifixion of Jesus is unique. And stands out so much so that he makes this declaration. Surely this man is righteous. Surely this man is the son of God. One might say that it is, we're told it was also that he glorified God. He praised God. He drew attention to the fact that this Jesus was from God. It is said in church history that this, this centurion became converted. He was the first convert to Christ after the crucifixion because of what he saw there so affected him that it drew him to make this confession of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We go on then in verse 48 and we see the response of the crowd. Remember, these are the residents of Jerusalem that have gathered together. They were there from the beginning of the mock trial. They were the mob that cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. They were those who chose Barabbas, the murderer, over Jesus, humble, meek, and mild. These were the ones who participated in the pulling of the beard and the slapping of the head. These were the ones who, who had bade for his blood. May his blood be upon us and upon our children. Crucify him. Crucify him. Have you ever been to a large football event or sporting event and the crowd begins to chant and cheer? You know, they go for their team. They were cheering for the death of Christ as football or hockey supporters cry out for their team. Here they are gathered and they have been prisoners of the darkness. All of the jokes, all of the, the, oh, he saved others, but let him come down and save himself. (laughs) All that mockery and all that scorn has dried up and has disappeared. The darkness has held them, the very presence of God. And they're Jews. They understand the Old Testament teaches that God veiled himself in darkness. In great thick clouds. Remember when God appeared to them on Sinai in the Old Testament. And he appeared veiled in thick clouds. Speaks again in Amos. God who clothed himself in great darkness. They they know. They understand. They recognize the biblical signs. They're, They're not like you and I who kind of know what the Bible says. These people have been brought up on the scriptures from infancy. Though they do not have a right understanding of them, they know what they say. They are familiar with them. And all of a sudden, they're living in the midst of them. In the middle of the day. And under the bright Middle Eastern sun. The sun feels to shine and darkness has enveloped them and they have become hostages of the darkness. And in that stillness, in the quiet of that moment, Jesus' voice crying out, drawing their attention, quoting scripture, them knowing again, right at the end is the darkness dissipates, disappears. Jesus, Father, into your hands do I commit my spirit. Quoting Psalm 31 verse 5 and their minds understanding we have killed an innocent man. And we see their response. Their response is very telling. Gone is the mockery. Gone is the scoffing. Gone is the joking. And the jesting. Now there's a panic. Now there's a guilt. Now there's a a sense of, oh my goodness, what have we done? It tells us here that they beat their breasts and they returned to Jerusalem where they came from. 
You and I, we don't really get the whole beating the breast thing. We're not Middle Eastern. We're not, we don't, we, you know, especially here in Finland. I've been to funerals here. They're like funerals. I mean, my goodness. Sad. In Ireland, when a person dies, there's a lot of emotion. You know, we laugh, we cry, we sing, we shout. Funerals are emotional things. First time I attended a funeral here in Finland, I thought someone had died. Because it was so, everybody was sad, sitting so quietly and looking sad. And I thought, did this person not have a life? Different cultural understandings of how you express life and death. In Ireland, we celebrate the life. We remember how they were. And we rejoice with them. Or we cry at our loss. But it's emotional and it's raw and it's real. And how Irish people express is, is pale in comparison to how the Middle Eastern people express their guilt or their feelings. They were very kind of just... Everything was over the top and, and, and real and, and vibrant. Again, this beating of the breast thing, we don't understand. Think about when you're so full of anxiety and worry that you, you rub your hands, perhaps. Or you bite your nails. Or you play with your hair, if you have hair. If you play with your hair, or you pace up and down. Or a person who's full of guilt, they kind of do this with their arms, don't they? They're, they're kind of... They can't be at peace. They know they've been caught. They know they've done wrong. They recognize that they're in danger. And that's what this is. Oh my goodness, what have we done? Oh my goodness, what have we participated in? Oh no. You see, they realize that Jesus was the real deal. They realize that he was from God. Indeed, the very things that he was saying were real and true and right. And they had participated in something terrible. And the guilt of that. The, the realization, not guilt that perhaps leads to salvation, though there is a case for that. The Bible tells us that at Pentecost, 3,000 people were born into the kingdom, were brought into the kingdom. Surely these, these some of these people were among those. Did not Peter, when in his great preaching, and Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, was he talking to there? The residents of Jerusalem, those who had gathered around the cross, the cross, who had participated in the crucifixion, who had provided false evidence, who had chanted like some deranged, demented, demonic football sporting crowd, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Here we have them. And now they see their sin. And there's no more jokes. There's no more joy or mockery. They're going home to weep. They're going home to think, what have I done? What will become of me? How, how, these are people that must now go and take their lamb of sacrifice to the temple and offer up that sacrifice, though they have the blood and the guilt Christ's death upon their hands. And they're taking that, that lamb to the priests to be slain, knowing that they have participated in an unrighteous death. We see very clearly that there is this conviction of their spirit. And then the third and final group were the acquaintances of Jesus. And here, Luke is very bland. He doesn't tell us how they responded. He doesn't tell us about how they were feeling or, or what they said. He simply says this, But all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They were there. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus' mother was there. We know that John the Apostle was there. We can 
speculate that his, <clears throat> his brother James and his other brother Jude were there. That the family had gathered with their mother watching that which was happening to Jesus from a distance. With but not with. Being respectful but in the same instance not there to give comfort. See, Luke again is setting us up. Though they are bereaved, though they are feeling the emotions, he doesn't want us to think that it is the end because he wants us, he's leading us to the resurrection. He wants you to understand that the death of Jesus is not the end. That there is coming a new day. It is the beginning of the story and not the end of the story. You know, there are, as always, great lessons for us to learn here from this text. We think of the centurion and his confirmation, his confession of faith. Of him being convinced. He saw with his own eyes. He heard with his own ears. He experienced the truth of the events that happened. And it produced a spoken confession. He confessed and gave glory to God. This is a righteous man. He may not have had the words to be able to articulate it. But what he was saying is, this is the Christ. This is the one sent by God. It was open and before all men. He didn't quietly say it within himself. And he's a Roman soldier. There would be consequences for him to make this statement. Because he's literally saying it was unrighteous for us to murder this man. There was a, an outward confession. Uh, coming together with Jesus, a connection there. One might say that this man defended Jesus in his death. We can learn so much of, of what it means to be a Christian just simply from that stand. Here's Jesus in his lowest of low, yet this centurion isn't afraid to have a connection with Jesus. How much more should we, who know the glorified Christ, we are living in the next part of the story, be unafraid. You and I, there are no political, there are no economic, supposedly, consequences for our declaration of connection with Christ. Yet, we can be so embarrassed, ashamed, silenced by social norms, we don't want to be seen as a, an enthusiast, a charismatic maniac, whatever. We, we want people to think of us as respectful, respectful and respectable. And we kind of trim our faith and make Jesus look nice, you know. And we talk about the risen Christ, but not the crucified Christ. Because what is the gospel if it isn't Christ crucified? It is there that we must begin. It's there that we must direct the attention of those who do not know him. We must own the crucifixion. We must be there at the foot of the cross. Standing together with Christ. Pointing and saying, truly he is. This was a righteous man. The son of God. Oh, beloved, I wish we had more of that backbone, more of that militant spirit, more of that absolute convincedness. Has God not done something in your life? Has God not done something in your heart, changed you, transformed you, provided for you? And yet sometimes our loyalty, isn't it, is up and down. 
Sometimes our confession is a quiver vegetable in our hand. Sometimes we choose the way of the world rather than the way of the kingdom because it's easiest for us. God, forgive us all that we would stand. And then we look at the crowd, those who had mocked, those who had scorned, those who had derided and made little of Jesus. And when they saw finally the truth, and they were overcome with guilt and they went away, beating their breasts, a confession of participation, an exclamation of, I'm in trouble, what have I done? The sign of guilt, I have participated in something. Oh my goodness, it was, it was me. I did it. Oh Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And they went away. Some, perhaps, came to faith at Pentecost. Others, their hearts became slowly hardened and poisoned by sin. Other things interfered with their thinking and led them away. And as Jesus told us in the parable of the soils, the little birds of the air came. Not real birds, but Satan and his elk came and took away the words of God. And their hearts were unaffected. And their ultimate destiny was not for heaven above, but hell below. This too, beloved, we can learn so much. How one can see the cross. How one can experience the very presence of God. That one can see with all understanding and clarity the fullness and the weight of your sin. And understand the consequences of your rejection. I, I, I made the declaration. May his blood be upon my hands and upon my children's. One can have all of those experiences. And yet still depart unconverted. And leave. And go back to normal life. So hard is the human heart, so uncaring, so callous, so enslaved by sin and under the oppression of the enemy. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that you can just escape the judgment. That if you close your eyes hard enough, if you stop up your ears enough, and if you say, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe, that you can avoid it. It's like the man who jumped from a high building and saying, I don't believe in gravity, I don't believe in gravity, I don't believe in gravity. It's flat. Just because you choose not to believe does not mean the reality is not so. Beloved, do not be as one of these scoffers and mockers and rejectors of Christ. When God has opened up your eyes and given you opportunity to see Christ, Him crucified, the reality of the sin-bearing servant, the righteous man, the one sent by God to save you from your sins, to save you from the consequences of God's wrath that is to come. Do not be like these fools who leave and go back to their darkness. See they experienced. The outer darkness of the veiled presence of God. Which opened up their eyes. And allowed them to see the reality. Of the sin bearing servant. But they left that illuminating darkness. And went back to the darkness of their own souls. See it says in the book of John that. Christ came to his own, but his own did not acknowledge him. That they loved darkness more than light, and they went back to the darkness. You can see the fullness of God. You can see the fullness of Christ. God can reveal it to you and show you so much so that you feel it, you know it. But it is still possible for you to reject him. Go the way of all those who reject Christ 
and his sacrifice on their behalf that ends in eternal judgment. Do not be as these people. And then the third group, his acquaintances, those who had followed him, those who had been part of his little church that followed him around as he went along his business, as well as the women. We know Mary, Martha. We know it was Mary, his mother. All these ladies who looked after him, they were there and they were apart and they were waiting. Though they may have experienced some kind of feelings of disappointment, of tragedy, of, oh my goodness, this is not what we expected. But yet Jesus had been warning them time and time again. But they were still there. They had not departed, nor had they fled. They persevered. Though they experienced such a terrible, terrible low on the Friday, Sunday was coming. Resurrection day was coming. Beloved, we who believe in Christ, though we might experience the lows together with Christ, though we may suffer together with Him in our stand with Him, we must always remember that resurrection is coming. See, our joy, our hope is not in this life and in the things of this life. It's not in a new building. It's not in lots of people coming to Jesus and the whole world becoming Christian and we all having a Christian party. No, beloved, for us Christians, our great hope, our great expectation, our great anticipation is the second coming. It is the resurrection. It is the being released from this earthly body that grows old and tired and feels aches and pains. The tragedies and betrayals and the inference of sin. We are looking to a day that is yet to come. We stand together with Christ. We are no longer at a distance. We stand in Jesus. We are looking to that day. That great and joyous and day where we will celebrate. Because as certainty as the resurrection Sunday happened, the second coming of Jesus is coming. Jesus prophesied and told his disciples, on the third day I will rise from the grave. And he did. He also told his disciples that he would return again. No longer as the lamb, but as the lion, as the judge of all the earth. He who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing. We look forward to that day. Beloved, don't be settled on the Friday. Be expectant for the Sunday. We don't, we're not part of this world. We're not marred and mirrored. We're not tossed from side to side by world events like Afghanistan or America or Europe, European Union, COVID or this it or what it. We don't care. Why? Because we are looking to a day when our Lord will return. And our hope and our excitement and our enthusiasm is bound up in that day. We have something greater. We are not destroyed by earthly events. COVID will come and COVID will go. The EU will come and the EU will go. America will rise, America will fall. China will rise and China will fall. Governments rise and governments. But Christ and his kingdom is forever. It's eternal. So beloved, let us remember these lessons that we can gather from those who gathered around the cross. Let's remember that darkness and what happened in that darkness, that your salvation, my salvation, our redemption was bought of what Jesus had to go through 
It wasn't simply the, the mockings of the Romans or the, the beatings of the Romans or the false trials or anything else. It was God himself appeared at the cross and poured out his wrath. And it was in that instant, in that instance of forsaking, that your salvation and my salvation was purchased. And a salvation for all those who would believe, who would look to him. Let us rejoice in the greatness of our, of our Savior. Let us always stand there together with him, but with the understanding that we are not stuck at the cross, that resurrection is coming, that he shall return and deliver us from this body of sin. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. Lord, we are such fickle creatures. Lord, we're up and we're down. We're back and we're forward. Lord, truly, we rejoice that you remember that we are just dust of the earth. We ask, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, we have become so Christianized, so complacent in our remembrance of your death, of what you did for us, of the events there, of those who were gathered, Lord, and it, so often it has no purchase upon our heart. It has no effect upon our feelings. It has no resonance with our life, Lord. We are so devoid of that experience. All too often, Lord, our, our attention, our eyes are bound up with the things of this life. Lord, with the, the acts of our governments, or Lord, the social trends. Oh, Lord. Please, we ask of you, help us to have an eternal perspective. The Lord God, we should have our eyes fixed firmly upon that day when you shall return. Lord, when you will rip asunder the sky and pour through with your countless hordes of angels. Where you will, Lord, snatch up your own. Where you will pour fire and thunder upon this creation. Oh, Lord, please, we ask of you, Lord, that you would remember those who, who do not know you. Lord, that you would open up their eyes, that you would show them the great darkness, that you would show them, Father, the great separation, that you would remind them, Lord, that they stand afar and that they are guilty of your blood, Lord, but also remind them of the, the tearing of the veil, Lord, of the, the breaking of the curtain, Lord, of the... the access that is not available to them that they have a true and real high priest all they need to do is cry out and to be saved to believe in you oh lord we pray lord we pray lord do these things for your glory and your glory alone in jesus precious name amen